So this is the first movie that we've done that I rented from the library. Like you went, like you physically went to the library and checked out the searchers. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's not specifically why I went there, but we. Okay. Uh, so we went with my daughter to get library cards. Okay. Because we just didn't have them. There was something we were going to do this summer because you know I had been in school, so it's like if I needed a library. I could use my school library. She had her school library. And we have, you know, like a bunch of books here. But that was just something that we just kind of never really needed and never really did, but decided to do this summer is like go to the the actual library, which is just down the street from us. Okay. But so we went there and then like the first section that's like right inside, right when you walk in is all the movies. And I was like, oh, I should see if they have the searchers. I'm sure they do. And they did. <laughs> okay, nice, nice. I got it on HBO. <laughs> oh, okay. See, there you go. So I would have had to probably pay like 2 or $3 or whatever to rent it on Amazon because I don't have HBO. Okay, yep, yep. No, so uh, my, my first note is like, hey, this is just a, another classic John Ford Western. But for the listener, this episode is actually going to come out before our episode on Stagecoach that we recorded <laughs> a couple months ago. Oh, Okay. So I think I'll just kind of leave it as uh, in Stagecoach, we'll talk about a lot of the Western tropes and essentially any Western movie trope that does not find its way into Stagecoach is in The Searchers. <laughs> so if they left out anything there, yeah. it's it's here. And I don't know about you, but for me personally, I so I really like both movies. I really like Stagecoach and I really like The Searchers. But for me, The Searchers is the better movie. Oh, and I, I think I like Stagecoach more. Really? Maybe maybe because I feel like The Searchers is more racist. <laughs> I don't know. The uh, just uh, we always we talk about the de- dehumanization of Native Americans in these old films, and I feel like it's worse here than it is in the in the Stagecoach. But did you not get that vibe? I mean, it's bad in both. I but- mean, yeah, but also like that's kind of what par for the course. Sub- well, it's par for the course, which I and I don't necessarily like. You know, I I try not to watch these movies with the through the moral lens of modern right, sensibilities. Fair. I try to kind of take them as they were at the time that they were made. So yeah, it's par for the course. But also, like that's kind of the <laughs> even even though it's kind of a low bar, I guess technically. But that's kind of the character growth of Ethan, the John Wayne character, is that he becomes less racist throughout the movie. Where he's like, well, I don't need to like does he though? kill this girl? Does he though? <laughs> Okay, so yeah, okay. Well, as we as we're getting into this, we should say that like this is a fictional movie, and we're kind of just talking about it. There will be some actual things we can talk about, and we'll get to that. But we'll kind of just talk about the movie here first as its own thing, and then get into the little bit of history that kind of is is in the area. Yeah, but no, like so when they finally get to we're gonna spoil a movie from 1956. So when they finally discover you know refine debbie his first instinct is like oh she's uh she's gone full native i'm just going to kill her because she's not human anymore because she's not white anymore and then yes his big turnaround 20 minutes later is okay i guess i won't kill her i'll just carry her home back to civilization yeah but also he's not portrayed by the movie as like correct and justified for having that point of view like oh that's fair that's fair they're they're outraged that he was going to make that decision but then also then the right. character switches it's on a dime he, there, we don't see why he made that change of heart other than just we decided to now he doesn't feel that way right yeah well I I think it's because 
even though it doesn't explicitly say, I think it's because of the relationship that he has with Marty with Martin. Okay, that's fair. Where he because at the beginning of the movie, he is like he does not like Martin. Right. And right. it is it is well, it's not even implied. It's like explicit, like because he's one eighth. He's like, in, oh, in, you're one eighth Cherokee. Yeah, I hate you. And then, like, because of their journey together, he, I think that is what okay. is is that's what the movie is saying is the reason for why he has that change of heart, where he's like, okay, I don't actually need to just murder Debbie. And, and that that is why where there is some bit of nuance in the film is that that relationship does warm and it goes from yeah outright uh hostility to uh respect from their years of journeying together but i i just don't think it's necessarily handled that way if the, if the idea is like he's still kind of i don't know the pacing of it seems off especially when you consider like this movie takes place over years so like it kind of almost like montages yeah. the last last five years and then so after four years, he's still a little bit this way. But then the last few months of that three years or last couple of days of that three years, he has a what feels like a 180. I, I don't know. It's honestly, dude, my other, also another thing my notes is like John Wayne's not a very good actor. He's just not. He's he's got great. He's got a good presence and he's kind of good at what he does. But he's just so awkward in this movie. I feel like I just I just think he's a crappy actor. I think uh, John Wayne is like. Well, he's like a lot of like a lot of like older like old school western stars and old old school western stars especially but old school action stars in general where John Wayne is good at playing John Wayne characters. Right. Just like Arnold Schwarzenegger is good at playing Arnold Schwarzenegger characters, but like you're not going to have, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not going to do like a Gary Oldman and become a chameleon in his role. It's like no, he's He's just going to be John Wayne, you know, John Wayne. Right. So maybe my issue is not that John Wayne's acting is the problem. The problem is I wish John Wayne wasn't cast in this movie. And then maybe maybe, maybe we could yeah. have a more interesting choice there. Maybe. But see, and th- this is the thing, though, too, is that I I don't know if I can even like be objective when it comes to this movie, okay, just because fair. like I remember seeing it like as a kid. OK. And so like I've seen this movie a few times. And I don't even know how young I was the first time I would have seen it. Yeah, I, I, I can't really be objective when it comes to stuff like, you know, the performance. Because, like, when I see John Wayne in The Searchers, like, the nostalgia for me is so overwhelming that it's like... Oh, okay. I'm not gonna watch it and be like, oh, yeah, this perform You know, he's not... It's not as grounded or what... Like, I, I just can't... I just can't do it. Versus I saw it for the first time as an adult, and this was only my second time ever seeing it. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, we are definitely approaching it differently there. So... Rewinding to the beginning of the film, so yeah, Ethan, played by John Wayne, kind of comes home back to his brother's place, and then immediately there's a simplified version. There's an Indian raid, and two of the the girls are captured, and everyone else is killed. And what the film does do an interesting job of, and this makes sense for Hayes Code 1956. You know, they're basically this is PG or no ratings. Like you weren't going to do anything super violent but the way they dance around the violence and sexual violence is yeah kind of well handled and almost in, in some ways more horrifying than if they had showed some of these yes things. and i, I yes. do give them props for that it honestly it reminded me a lot of blood meridian so ah, which i still haven't read yeah where at but it, it was just handled it in a different way so like in the searchers there is very and in blood meridian it's very much like this very 
grim, violent view of the Wild West, not this standard, you know, Hollywood Western, which would have been more of a glorified, you know, glitzy, glamorous, romanticized view of the Wild West. It's, you know, it's more, it's more violent and bloody um, and terrible. Whereas in Blood Meridian, it's very explicit and very graphic in the depictions of the violence. In this movie, it's like, and I wonder too, if maybe because I had just finished reading Blood Meridian, if then when in this movie, they're like, oh, just don't go in there. And it's like, oh, I know what that looks like in my brain, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's like even more terrible, maybe than even what the filmmakers were right, trying right. to, were trying to evoke. But yeah. And, and you brought up too, like the sexual violence, which is not, it's all a hundred percent implied. None of it is, is stated. It's right. But it's still very present. It's a very present theme in the movie. And yeah, so the two examples are very stark. And the one is when they first come back to the house. So basically the Comanche had baited them out by like stealing some house or horses or cattle or whatever. And then the men go out right. to confront them while the Comanche raid the home. And then when they get yeah. back, John Wayne kind of comes out of the little building or whatever there. And Marty wants to go in and look and... John Wayne's like, nope, you ain't going in there, kid. And he's right. Martin, Martin tries to be insistent, and John Wayne ends up punching him, punches him in the face, just so he doesn't right. have to see what's inside. Right. And he and he tells the other, he tells the, uh, he tells old Mose, he said, don't let him go in there, won't do him any good. Right. Right. Basically, like they're gone, so just don't. You don't want to have that be the last memory that you have of them. Right. And the other one is later when they find, oh, what's the older daughter's? name lucy. lucy yeah so when they yeah so they it kind of just says like oh where'd your coat go or something uh never mind let's go let's keep going and then he, yeah it slowly comes out over you know the next several minutes of film time and probably hours for the characters that like wait you found lucy didn't you well it's it's because they so he asked him about the coat he said oh did you did you lose your jacket and, and it was a it would have been something that john wayne's character ethan would not have been likely to just lose and not notice that he lost and leave behind because it was his jacket, his uniform jacket from when he was a Confederate soldier. That's what I was thinking. Okay, yeah, yeah. So when you when you see that, it's like okay, there's some something else is going on because he comes out and he's kind of kind of despondent and and they ask him, oh, did you loot? Did you, where'd your jacket go? Did you drop it? He goes, oh yeah, I must have. Right. And but it's like okay, that character wouldn't have just dropped that and not noticed. And then they're staking out the Comanche camp and. Lucy's fiance or That's boyfriend right. or whatever says, "Oh, I saw I saw Lucy," and he said, "How did how did you know it was Lucy?" He said, "Well, I I could see I I know Lucy's blue dress, and I saw I saw you know I recognize that dress anywhere. I saw Lucy, and that's when John Wayne says that wasn't Lucy. That was a Comanche wearing Lucy's dress because I just buried Lucy back there in that canyon when we split up in my jacket. In my jacket, right, right. And the guy says he says, "Well, was she?" And he doesn't finish that sentence. He said, did she? And he doesn't finish that sentence. And John Wayne says, don't ever ask me anything about it. I'm just, don't ever talk to me about this ever again. Right. He basically says, you want me to draw you a picture? I'm not talking about it. Right. Yeah. 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 Which, again, because I had just read Blood Meridian, I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. I know what that scene looks like. But yeah, he, it's more implied in, uh, in this movie than it, than it would be maybe in, in even uh, like a modern Western. Yeah. So then the film is essentially just then the five years of them searching for Debbie, the nine-year-old when she was captured. And then we kind of cut back and forth with the people, they're kind of their friends and family kind of, 
getting letters from them. And there's the girl that is, you know, kind of waiting for Martin, but he feels kind of honor bound to find Debbie, who's kind of like a stepsister, foster sister to him. And and that's kind of the film. Um, The one thing I didn't get is the Futterman betrayal. So they go and get information from this guy. And then somehow Ethan knew that that guy was going to come after them. And so he kind of like makes it look like he's asleep by the fire and then takes up a defensive position on a rock. So that when Futterman comes to kill him, he can take out Futterman. But but where did that come from? Why did Futterman betray them? What am I missing? Uh, I think that Futterman knew that he had money. Oh, he's just simply going to rob him. I think it was it was just a robbery, yeah. Because Futterman, because he offers Futterman a thousand dollars, which in you know eighteen sixty eight is a lot. I is gotcha. a lot of money. I gotcha. And he even and he he pays him too with a gold coin or a, a bunch of a few gold coins. And and they do imply that Futterman is greedy. Okay, okay, right. And and he says, you know, well, because he wants a thousand dollars up front, and John Wayne says no. When I get Debbie, you earned it once Debbie's alive, right? I'll I'll give you a thousand dollars. I think Futterman is thinking, well, there's no like Debbie's probably not alive, or they're never going to find her, so I might as well just rob these guys and take the thousand dollars now. Okay, and that does make sense. I just was conf- it seemed out of nowhere to me, other than yeah, they didn't imply he was greedy, but they, they, honestly, I almost feel like they needed a scene of Futterman exchanging a look to one of his buddies before they then like motion like let's go follow them like I, even just like a five second little gesture i think would have made that more clear to me because to me yeah i thought it was related to something else and i couldn't figure it out but that makes sense and then uh there's a great line i thought too because then ethan doesn't tell martin about it and so martin's like well you're basically just using me as bait and then he says yeah what if you'd missed and then the great john wayne line here is which again <laughs> only john wayne can deliver is like never occurred to me <laughs> yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i i did appreciate that one and then yeah they finally do get uh debbie back and you can you can tell that she does feel now attached to the comanche and they even kind of first see her and they they have the whole you know main bad guy scar that's the comanche guy they're kind of tracking down and debbie is with them and they you know at first he thinks about killing her because she's kind of been assimilated into comanche culture and then they finally do rescue her and then you do get Two very iconic shots, both at the beginning and the end of the film, because the cinematography is great. Again, this is a John Ford directed yeah. film. It is a yeah. beautiful film, another monumentally yeah. John Ward, uh, John Ford film. Right. Well, actually, since since the listeners oh, will not have right, heard right, us right, talk right. about Monument Valley, we're going to talk about Stagecoach later. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the door the doorway is the iconic thing. You've seen you've seen this yep. scene. Well, first is his, uh, I guess it'd be his sister-in-law at the beginning, kind of in the doorway, walking into the house. And then at the end, it's John Wayne ambling away, kind of out of the doorframe in the silhouette with Monument Valley kind of through the doorway. And he kind of, yeah, it's, it's just a very iconic shot. Even if you haven't seen The Searchers, you've seen this, that shot. Yeah. And so the YouTube channel Cinefix, they had a video. It was like the top 10 closing shots of all time. And the searchers was in. I don't remember what oh, number okay. it was, but it was in the top ten. Yeah, and yeah, it's that it's that shot where it's through the doorways, and it's like perfect thirds. So like the middle third of the screen is the open doorway, and you see Debbie reunited with his family. They go in the house. You see Marty reunited with his fiance. They go in the house, and then John Wayne is outside. And instead of coming in the house, he then turns around and walks back out into the distance, and it's like him. Like his job is done, and now and he d- now doesn't have a place in this like peaceful, loving home life because of the 
you know, violent life that he's lived and that he's accustomed to, and he realizes he doesn't have a place there or doesn't belong there, and then it's him returning back out to the West. Yes. And that's, yeah, it's such such a cool shot. Yeah, the lone hero off into the sunset shot. Yeah. And that opening scene, too, through the doorway where he's coming in out of the distance through the desert, uh, apparently that was is the inspiration for another very iconic shot in movies from another movie that I love, Omar Sharif's arrival introduction scene in Lawrence of Arabia. It was inspired by and is slightly based on that opening shot from The Searchers. Oh, interesting. And that's according to David Lean, too. That's not just because they kind of look similar. Gotcha. No, and I, I think it's probably works even better in Lawrence of Arabia, but it's still, yeah, that's still cool that it's, there's a connection there. That's kind of about all I had on the movie itself. I will say it is a 94 slash 88 on Rotten Tomatoes. It surprisingly had zero Oscar nominations, which, man, cinematography is a slam dunk, obviously. And, and the score, very much like Stagecoach, like this, the score is very iconic in The Searchers. I'm just, I'm just I'm surprised yeah. that neither of those got any nominations. That actually makes me kind of want to go look at the... Like, what, oh, what was nominated that year, right? In those yeah. categories? Because, yeah, it's... it's uh Yeah, let's let's go look, because I didn't even... Because John Ford was so respected by this time that even even if you're lukewarm on the film, like, you still give, you know, the cinematography score, maybe even John Ford for director. Yeah, so let's see. Giant won that year, or George Stevens won for Giant for Directing. Best Director. Okay, yep. which is a great movie. Um, The other... Director nominations, Michael Anderson for Around the World in 80 Days, William Wyler for Friendly Persuasion, Walter Lang for The King and I, and King Vidor for War and Peace. That's a pretty solid year then. Okay. So yeah. I, I can see four being, you know, six six men out there. But what about cinematography or score? All right. So The King and I won for score. Which that's more of a musical versus this. Is, yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. The, the other movies nominated, though, The Best Things in Life are free. The Eddie... Duchin or Duchin story. I've never never heard of that movie. High Society and Meet Me in Las Vegas are the other score. Huh. Yeah, I definitely put the searchers in there. Okay, let's see. Best cinematography, someone somebody up there likes me. Never seen it. Baby Doll, The Bad Seed, The Harder They Fall, and Stagecoach to Fury. I've never What? I've never heard of any of those movies and I don't understand why That's so bizarre. They would have gotten nominated over this movie. Especially like yeah, I've never even heard of any of these movies, and like, and then this, yeah, this this one's just so iconic, and it's not like this was like a a small little indie flick that would have you know that people would have like then seen years later and then fondly remembered. It's like no, this was like a big deal production at the time too. So right, and there's a lot of stuff where they're out actually in Monument Valley. It's not like there's a lot of just uh, rear projection, green, you know. Sets. There are some, but like yeah. the, the the Fetterman ambush, that's all I think uh, kind of on a soundstage. But like the big landscapes are used uh, throughout. Right. They actually, So I watched some of the special features on the DVD mm. where they talk about shooting in Monument Valley. And it was like when they went there and I, this wasn't the first movie that they shot there, obviously, but it must have been in a part of Monument Valley that they had not previously been to or maybe just the scale of the production in Monument Valley was greater than in his previous movies that he had shot there. But they, like, built all these new roads into Monument Valley, Hmm. and they, like, you know, built electricity lines. They basically built a small town in Monument Valley for the production of this movie to, like, feed and house the 300 people, you know, the cast and crew and everybody. And they built, you know, actual, like, that, uh, the house 
at the beginning, the one that gets burned down, that was completely built. Like that, there was nothing there before. Oh, okay, uh, they actually burned it down then too. Right. Um, which uh, oh, speaking of uh, iconic shots, that shot where they come over the ridge and they see the house on fire. That's Star Wars. Star Wars, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's thought. Luke Skywalker finding Uncle Owen and Amperu. Yep. Yep. But yeah, so they built that house. They built the other. I think it's the maybe the Fetterman house. I, one of the other houses is actually you know a an actual house built um, mm-hmm. that wasn't just a a soundstage set. But yeah, it was kind of cool seeing like how they did all that, doing the uh, the stunt where they drop the guy off the cliff. Where they drop Marty off the cliff. That's an actual stuntman huh. being dropped off of an actual cliff. They showed... Oh, something else cool that they showed was all the uh, horse stunts. And the, the stunt riders. Whenever you see the guys getting shot and, like, falling off the horses, that's all real. Oh, right, right, right. But just, And they so they would, like... And they put, like, knee pads and stuff on the horses that huh. they would then, like, paint over to make it look like it was part of the horse's actual leg. Oh, huh. And I, I guess that there's, like, specific... And I guess I... I'm sure I maybe knew this, or I, they're not actually hurting animals when they do this, but there are ways that you can train a horse to, like, at a full gallop, like, fall? kind of fall over, and oh, it, huh. but it doesn't hurt it. Hurt, it's, right. you know, it's like doing, like, a like a break fall or doing, like, a roll or something, like, in, in a martial art. Like, they can train horses huh. to, like, fall at a full run and, like, in a way that it doesn't hurt it. And I, I don't know. I just, that was something cool that I never really thought about before that i learned watching the special features and then you can always speed it up like 50 percent if you wanted to like true true no that's cool so before we get into a little bit of the history here i did have one more thing there's actually a f- several several connections to the general we can talk about here okay or sorry a couple plus some uh feedback here so the actor who plays marty in the searchers also played William Fuller in the Disney version, The Great Locomotive Chase. So the character who... Okay. So, so the real-life William Fuller is who Johnny Gray, Buster Keaton's character, is based on. And then the actor who yeah. plays Martin was William Fuller in The Great Locomotive Chase. And he's not the only actor in The Searchers who is in The Great Locomotive Chase. Because the other one is the guy who plays Brad, Lucy's boyfriend... Okay. Who you would know better as Fred White in Tombstone. Oh. You can't recognize him at all. Like, you can't see it at all, but it's the same yeah, guy. Yeah, no, because he's in... It's 35 years difference or whatever. Right, right. I was just saying, the searchers, he's like, he's like maybe in his early 30s, probably maybe even still in his 20s. And then, yeah, so then they'd be, yeah, 20 or 35. He's, he's basically 30, yeah, he's basically 35 in the searchers and 70 in Tombstone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like an old, the old... Old grizzled lawman. That's funny. And then, so there was a. I post. Well, I had been posting our episodes in a subreddit called like History Podcasts, which apparently I just found out this week was banned for no moderator anymore. The basically the community had just died, and so the moderators mm. had left, and so the community gets banned for lack of moderation. Anyway, just a couple weeks ago, though, when I had posted our episode on the general in there. Someone, I don't know if they actually listened to our episode or not, but they just commented on my post, and I believe them, but they purported to be the great-great-grandson of William Fuller. Oh. And basically, because they were talking about how, like, oh, yeah, the general is loosely based off my great-great-grandpa, and you're like, okay, anybody can say that, but then he kind of gave me some details, like, 
oh yeah, I have a bunch of the old family letters and I shared something with such and such museum. And then he sent me a picture to the like obelisk in the cemetery that's like a monument to William Fuller. And I'm like, this all seems pretty legit. I mean, it's not that big a deal to be descended from William Fuller. It was just kind of neat that that descendant then kind of connected with us a little bit on Reddit there. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. But then I couldn't go back and find it because since that subreddit had been pulled, even my messages I shared with him are gone now too. <laughs> so wait, 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 oh, was it in the comments? It wasn't yeah, in... Yeah, sorry, I wasn't in direct messages. We were just kind of going... We were, oh, we were okay. sharing comments back and forth on my post. And so that's all gone now. Yeah. And yeah. now that's just all, that's just gone. And But I did think that was neat that a descendant of William Fuller had reached out to us. Okay, so... History background here, even though, again, everything here is, is fictional, there are, there, are still, uh, there are some definite nuggets of actual history and actual things that were going on at the time. So the film opens in 1868, and we're in West Texas. And this was an area under kind of Comanche control, or it was considered Comanche territory. And we always talk about how complicated all this Native American stuff is. There's hundreds of tribes with different languages and cultures and traditions before the Europeans came over here, and it's just not possible for us to break it all down. So the simple version is that, yes, the Comanche were kind of one of the last holdouts as you get into the 1860s here uh, against this kind of uh, white colonization and, and moving out to the frontier in the West. The Comanche is one of the last holdouts that just kind of kept fighting on all these encroachments into their land. And so it really is one of the, we always talk about history is written by the winner. I mean, obviously we are kind of descendant from these white Europeans coming in, but ultimately the whites slash Americans are the invaders. They are invading into Comanche territory to set up these, these new things. And the Comanche are just kind of like violently resisting that. They had also though fought the Spanish and the Mexicans before in Texas. And now the white settlers are just the new people that the Comanche just keep fighting because they're just not willing to let this territory fall out of their own control. Not to uh, not to turn this into the Blood Meridian podcast oh. or anything, but, <laughs> but that is actually uh, one of the scenes in the very first, I think it's the first, the very first Indian attack in the book, where it's describing, you know, all of the, all the Indians that are attacking them. It talks about, you know, some of them are wearing animal skins, some have top hats, and then one of the guys is wearing a conquistador helmet. That even uh-huh. at the time would have been like 300 years old. But it just, it just kind of, it like, is interesting to see like how this tribe of people has been like combating these outside, you know, to them invaders for hundreds of years. And so they're wearing, you know, some of, some of them are wearing, you know, like Mexican military attire. Some are wearing American military attire. Some are just wearing like Western, like one of the guys is wearing just like a, like a tuxedo jacket. And then you have a guy wearing a conquistador helmet, and it's just like a just an interesting visual thing from the book. But well, as with wolves, we had seen we see an old conquistador helmet that's kind of been passed down uh, through generations. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and then even in this film, when Martin's kind of trading with a, dif- a different tribe, his hat seems to be the thing that they desire the most, and it's kind of you see that in several films. Uh, so I'm guessing to some extent there must have been a lot of truth to that, that the, the natives were very just interested in different clothing styles or just options. Yeah. Just like, like, oh, that's neat and completely different than anything we have. Therefore, it's highly valuable. So almost they kind of, they kind of like this individuality that you could get by mm-hmm. having. And, and again, just kind of just a trope you see throughout films, but it's almost so pervasive 
I would imagine there's some some truth to it. Uh, the 1860s were kind of like the beginning of the big push where the U.S. military kind of started getting involved. And you'll actually talk about the Texas Rangers here in a second. We're, and we're kind of right at the end. So the film does take five years. So by the end of the film, we're in roughly, you know, 1873. And it was actually 1875 when the Comanches finally surrendered and agreed to move to the Oklahoma Territory Reservation. Um, so yeah. this, this film kind of takes place right at the end of all of that. And just kind of a local connection for us with our Kansas background here is that, so 1867, the year before the, the film The Searchers begins, was when the Medicine Lodge Peace Treaty was signed in, in Kansas. Mm. You've, I, did you, I know you ran, we, ran, we had cross-country races down there. Do you actually ever run on the Peace Treaty grounds for your race, or are you always on the golf course there? Not on the Peace Treaty. I never ran on the Peace Treaty grounds, but multiple times growing up, we would go to the pageant. Because they have the pageant, is it every year or every couple years? Every other year, every few years, yes, yes. So they reenact this, they they still to this day reenact this 1867 uh, peace treaty negotiation in Medicine Lodge. It's kind of a big festival for that community. And then we used to run, uh, and I raced there as an athlete, the uh, cross-country course was on the peace treaty grounds. And I was looking online here about the treaty, and it said it was kind of a important place for like the natives there which kind of makes sense because there's kind of like this higher area and lower area so it is kind of a neat spot yeah and i don't know if i guess it was you know looking back is it actually sacrilegious but yeah we're just running across country courses on <laughs> this old kind of uh would have been would have been kind of a sacred native area where this peace treaty took place and yes i also if i mean, it was probably grade school at the time but i also went to the the peace treaty pageant reenactment one year and so yeah kind of, kind of a big deal down there locally here for us but it is all kind of connected to specifically the comanche and uh, this peace treaty all kind of happened around the same time. And actually, well, I don't know to what extent it was only Comanche or with the Comanche with the Medicine Lodge thing, but it is all, all connected because I, I think there's more tribes involved with that. And then just the Comanches in general, we did mention them also in conjunction with Dances with Wolves. I think they're the tribe mentioned in the book, not necessarily in the film. They became a big, obviously, they didn't, we wouldn't have had horses pre-European interventions, the Europeans that brought their horses over, but the Comanches were one of the tribes that like really got into the horse thing and used that to their massive advantage, both militarily and with their hunting. And so they kind yeah. of thrived off of bison hunting once they got horses, and that just came, became a huge part of Comanche culture was horseback bison hunting, and that was kind of their thing. Well, and even the, uh, the flag of the Comanche Nation today is a guy on horseback with a with a spear okay perfect there you go and and what i saw says there are still about seventeen thousand comanche people today and i think it seems like most of those are are probably in oklahoma and another uh taylor sheridan hell or high water connection oh uh ben foster's character meets the guy at the casino and he says he says you, you comanche he says lord of the you know oh lords of the plains kind of mocking him and the guy says well, we're lords of nothing now and then later on, at the end of the movie, in the final gunfight, when Ben Foster, like right before he gets killed, when he's you know having his big shootout, and he's looking over that kind of valley as he's up on the on the high ground, and he said like whispers to himself like Lord of the Plains, and then he gets shot in the head. Huh. Interesting. No, I do like all those little all those little connections, and uh, everyone does need to see Hell or High Water. <laughs> Under man, underrated movie. Hell or High Water is great. Oh yeah, so good, so good. And so then the other historical thing here, again, before you get to the Texas Rangers, is uh, the character of Debbie 
is somewhat modeled on or inspired by one Cynthia Ann Parker. And I forget if we mentioned her specifically by name, but she's also the same woman who's uh, the inspiration for Stance with a Fist and Dances with Wolves. So right. the real Cynthia Ann Parker was captured during a Comanche raid when she was nine years old. So the film kind of just makes it, okay, her friends and family are searching for her for five years, and she does age up because she's a play by Natalie Wood uh, by the end of the film, a 17-year-old Natalie Wood playing a roughly 14, 15-year-old Debbie. Which I had to look because, to me, I thought Natalie Wood looked... She looked like she's 25, and she's only 17, yeah. Looked way older than she actually was. I was like, I don't know if I buy her as a 14-year-old. Right, it's like, she, you look, she would have been 17 when they filmed, yeah. Right, she's only 17, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I guess it's not, like, too different, right, but, like, right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but in real life, Cynthia Ann Parker wasn't, quote, rescued until 24 years after she was captured at nine years yeah. old. And so by that yeah. time, she was fully integrated into the tribe, considered herself Comanche, had three right. children with the chief of the tribe, and even right. then her son, uh, one of her sons became the subsequent, and actually, and I think even technically the final chief of this particular tribe of Comanche. So, yeah. so even though her family is seeing it as, we've rescued you. She's like, I basically just got captured again, just this time, it, you know, in the other way. I don't want right. like, I don't want to go, yeah. Right, like she would try to escape back to her Comanche family, right. and her white yeah. family basically said like, no, 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 we're, we're saving you, you're, you're one of us still now. Right, it's like that the Star Wars meme, you know, you are being rescued. Please do not resist. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, now it's tricky, though, too, because it's like, okay, you want her now as a woman in her 30s to have the autonomy to pick and choose where she wants. But also you could argue it's just the ultimate Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing. It's like she was kidnapped. Like she was yeah. being held captive and her stolen from her family. But then she just that just kind of became her new family to where that's where she preferred to be. But right. Ethically and morally, it is it is a little strange. It's yeah. a little weird. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what's what's correct there. Because at some point the damage is done. And it's still her choice to now just live with her captors, right? I, I I guess I guess you would say like even if the circumstances of her kidnapping at that age, you know, like it was, she was taken against her will and it was against her family's wishes. It's twenty four years later. She's in her thirties, so it's like. At that point, I feel like she has enough agency to make her own decisions to right. decide for herself. I don't know, but I can I can also see the other argument. But you know, well, she she's still technically kidnapped. I don't know. Well, I think the answer then becomes okay. She gets to choose as an adult what she wants to do with her life, but mm -hmm. we're still going to hold the people who kidnapped her accountable to what extent we can. And so, if that means we sure. throw her father in law in prison then that's what we're going to do, and she's going to have to live with that, yeah. even if she chooses to live with the Comanche family still. And again, it's, I, mean, right. I don't think they were probably having these debates back then. They were just kind of holding her captive with her white family, and then she died just a few years after they rescued her. Well, not a few years after. So she died in 1871. So her, her story actually happened way before. So the film here starts in 1868. Cynthia Ann Parker yeah. was actually captured in 1836, like the same year of the Alamo battle. Yeah. So just kind of a different timeline, but definitely still an inspiration for... Both Debbie and the Searchers, and Stands with a Fist and Dances with Wolves. And I really don't have much more about her. Again, she's only kind of famous because of her captivity, not for anything else. Again, and her son was a chief, but that's kind of his own yeah. uh, separate thing. He died in, I think, 19, 1914. 
Well, and it's even kind of a it's kind of a gender swapped version of Little Big Man. True. Yeah. Yeah. You can almost argue he's kind of even inspired by uh, this as yeah. well. Yeah. While we're on the subject of Debbie, real fast. Yes. I saw kind of a I don't know if I would call it a fan theory, but there is some people who say that there that this is implied in the movie that because there is a a little bit of an attraction, a spark between John Wayne and his sister-in-law at the beginning. Oh, right. A little, it's a little flirt- flirtatious, yeah. They're clearly, it's a little flirtatious. They're clearly very fond of each other. And also the fact that he had been gone for eight years. Oh. Or nine years. And like, that's how old Debbie is. Or he had been gone for eight years and, and Debbie's nine years old or whatever. That Debbie is actually his kid, and that's why he finally, you know, that's one of the contributing factors of why he decides not to kill her and actually rescue her and return her to the family is because he knows that that's actually his daughter. That's interesting, and especially when you think about in the Hayes Code era, that's definitely something they would not have been quite too explicit with. Is this based on a book or anything? Because I almost that's that's enough of I don't know I, that it makes me think that might be what they were going for. I think it's. I don't think that there's very much evidence to okay. support it. I think it's just because it it is possible that it would time out that way, and the fact that there is that little bit of flirtation between John Wayne and his sister in law at the beginning. Like I think that's literally where the where the evidence ends. Okay, okay, but again, it's it's there. It's also it's just like well, why else would you put it there? It, it's interesting. I kind I I think that is interesting. Oh, and then I guess a few other things too. They kind of talk about. It's again Hollywood kind of because obviously John Wayne's character Ethan fought for the Confederacy, so it's yet again an example of Hollywood right. making the Confederacy the aggrieved victim of the Northern aggression, essentially. Which I don't understand how they just kind of kept painting it this way for so long. And like you said, Ethan isn't necessarily supposed to be the virtuous hero, but it, I do feel like they're trying to get you on the side of yep, North bad, South good. It's just what I keep feeling from so many of these movies from this time and there's one character actually was it i think it was maybe ethan also uh gets super defensive when he's like just get back from california he almost gets like pissed that anyone dare think he was ever in california yeah yeah well because this was three years after the end of the civil war so he was clearly somewhere between the end of the civil war and when he finally comes home to his family i think on the wikipedia page it says that because he says he wasn't in California, that that's implying that he was part of the uh, the Franco-Mexican War that took place after the okay. Civil War. But that they don't ever say that in the movie or anything. But huh. it, that would time out with the him coming back in 1868. And just with how information might have worked back then, of course, this is also kind of just for the quick joke. But the, the adults kind of say like, oh, yeah, the war ended three years ago. And then the son says, it did. Like, right. he had no idea the war was even over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Practice all the stories he'd he'd be he'd be hearing. Okay, yeah. So tell us about the Texas Rangers that we do kind of see kind of toward the end of the film kind of come into play. Yeah. Well, the the, uh, the captain. Oh, sorry. He is he's a captain of the Texas Rangers. Okay, but then like the whole group is later. Be right. The captain's kind of throughout. Right. Yeah. So the Texas Rangers, they've kind of had a, an on again off again. They've been disbanded and refounded several times, but they trace their lineage back to. 1823, when Stephen F. Austin, aka the father of Texas, founded this group of guys basically to protect settlers, white settlers in Texas against Native American attacks. So 
basically the exact mission that we see these guys taking on in the movie. Like, that's the quintessential Old West Texas Ranger mission. Just protect the settlers from Native American attacks. Okay. They had kind of a dual role law enforcement and paramilitary force role in their early history. So they became an official law enforcement agency after Texas gained independence from Mexico in 1836. But then they were also, they were doing law enforcement stuff, but at the same time doing things like acting as scouts, guides, um, and even just like regular, you know, fighting forces during the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 1848, including at the Alamo, uh, the Siege of Fort Texas, and the Battle of Monterey. They were also, throughout the 19th century, engaged in numerous conflicts with different Native American tribes. They were pursuing outlaws. They were carrying out expeditions. They were disbanded after, or disbanded during the Civil War. And then most of those guys that were rangers went and joined the Confederate Army. So technically, at the time of when the movie takes place, there was no official Texas Rangers because they were. They were disbanded during the Civil War, so there were no there was no Texas Ranger organization from 1861 to 1865, and then in 1870 during Reconstruction, there was this kind of Texas Ranger organization, but it was founded and organized by the Union government. So a lot of Texas Ranger purists say that that those aren't real; those weren't ever real Texas Rangers because that was you know they weren't controlled by like. Texas. They were okay. controlled by the actual Union federal government. Um, and then that was disbanded three years later. During the early 20th century, they had a a big influx of membership where they weren't able to properly vet everybody that they were bringing on to the Texas Rangers, which then led to a bunch of issues where there was like these big uh, excessive use of force is like a nice way to put it basically massacres Ugh. where like groups of texas rangers would just go into a town and just kill like all the men or just kill anyone who was like of mexican heritage and so that actually led to uh, an investigation in 1919 it was like a state congressional investigation into the texas rangers and they were disbanded again or they not disbanded but they were they were forced to downsize by like a thousand rangers or something uh they oh yeah so they they had to reduce their numbers to just 68 rangers oh and then it says that most of the guys that got cut from the rangers just went into local law enforcement or joined the u.s border patrol which was established in 1924 okay okay so then it was during the 1930s that they actually then became organized how they are today, which is as a part of the Texas Department of Public Safety. So Texas DPS is like the state law or law enforcement organization. So under them is like the state highway patrol. And then the investigative bureau of that is the Texas Rangers. Okay. So like in Kansas, you know, you have the KBI, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Right. Basically, it's the same the same type of deal. Just kind of a different origin than, than most, or like an older, more kind of military origin than maybe some of the other states would have. Right, yeah. They have a, a longer history and a, a more colorful history than like most state, you know, just state criminal investigation bureaus. Huh. Today, they're pretty much, they're, they're only law enforcement 
the paramilitary side is not um, not really a thing anymore. They investigate everything from murder and corruption to uh, border security issues and organized crime. Actually, again, in hell or high water, (laughs) the Jeff Bridges character, the guy that's chasing them, he's a Texas Ranger. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they also provide um, expertise to local law enforcement agencies during complex cases and help with help with training. And uh, they've since their founding, they've been involved in numerous like high profile and famous cases. They prevented uh, an assassination attempt on President Taft in 1909. They were responsible for arresting John Wesley Hardin, who's a famous Texas outlaw. And then it was also Texas Rangers who pursued and killed uh, Bonnie and Clyde in the 1930s. Huh. So it kind of just occurred to me, it's like, since this is is a bonus episode and we will talk about Stagecoach, we don't really talk about John Ford himself much, and I probably not a bad idea to highlight John Ford is kind of like this old master of westerns, and I'm just kind of going through all his stuff here. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have the record for most Oscar nominations for a director, but it looks like he has the record for wins. He won Best Director four times. Oh, wow. So uh, 1936 is The Informer, which I'm not super familiar with, even if I actually may have seen it though still. Grapes of Wrath, though, the Henry Fonda one, was a John Ford film he won Best Director for. The following year, he won for uh, How Green Was My Valley, which is a movie not a lot of people have heard of, but it's famous because it's the movie that beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture. And so it's kind of infamous in, in that regard. But John Ford won Best Director for that. And then uh, The Quiet Man, another John Wayne, uh, very sexist <laughs> movie that I don't think holds up well at all. But he won Best Director for... Uh, that as well and then you kind of look so he's famous for filming in monument valley and as i'm kind of just like googling here there's even a it kind of makes sense because it shows up in the films it's called john ford's point in monument valley where it's just kind of kind of just find that most iconic backdrop with these you know obviously if you haven't been to monument valley utah it is gorgeous but there's these very distinct rock formations out in the desert and so there's a certain spot that's even kind of called john ford's points if you if you google that and it, it, it definitely is something we see in his films uh because he did enjoy filming there um he also does make a i mean i guess it's technically a spoiler but i don't think it really is for uh the fablemans uh which is based on steven spielberg's life mm-hmm. we see a young uh, the char- uh, sam i think that the character is a proxy for spielberg falls in love with the man who shot liberty valance another john ford film and he meets uh, John Ford, an elderly John Ford at the end, <laughs> played very well by David Lynch. And uh, what were the other films? I th- those are kind of the main ones. But yeah, definitely uh, an iconic director known specifically. Like his, his trademark is kind of filming in Monument Valley and just kind of doing all these, all these old classic westerns. Again, so yeah, My Darling Clementine's another Henry Fonda one, uh, Rio Grande. And yeah, just uh, very well respected. Again, I'm pretty sure that four wins is still the record for uh, best director wins at the Oscar. Again, I don't think a lot of them hold up particularly well, but it's definitely still worth watching these old John Ford movies uh, if you're at all interested in in westerns or the history of film or western, yeah, all that kind of stuff. He also might be a candidate for our most interesting American. Oh, John Ford himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you know that he's a World War II veteran? I mean, uh, he would have been a little old, but uh, I'm not surprised. He he was. 
but he was and and actually, it's funny actually like during his time in the military in World War II, he was still making movies and winning Oscars. <laughs> oh right, was, How Grew My Valley was 1942. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he was the head of a photographic unit for the OSS, which is like the precursor to the CIA, and actually became a top advisor to Wild Bill Donovan, who was like the father of the CIA. Huh. And uh, he, he was at he was at D Day. Ford was? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, that's like an interesting, outside of just his, you know, Hollywood career, like, that aspect of his life, I think it's kind of cool that he was doing, like, like secret spy photographing stuff, and also making movies and winning Oscars the whole time. Right. It almost makes you think of a, uh, oh, who's the Chuck something, the uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind guy where he supposedly was claiming to have done all these things, like while being a game show host, also working for the CIA, but obviously the CIA is like, we don't know what he's talking about, he's full of it, but he's like, of course that's what they'd say. <laughs> yeah. But it makes, me, it makes me think of that as far as like someone like, not that John Ford was leading a double life, but just that he was in two very distinct camps, like, like you're saying, that he's the, kind of this yeah. artist, but then also uh, involved with a lot of that real-life history stuff. Yeah, kind of like, like Jimmy Stewart. Who was like a uh, you know big time like Hollywood actor, but then you know during World War II was like a decorated bomber pilot. Right. Uh, well, man, you know what? Another, I mean, Ronald Reagan himself, like going from actor to to president yeah. of the United States, like that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, not that we we haven't got to like Reagan on our timeline yet, but we've seen him in the films. Uh, we've uh, right. We've been doing, and I didn't think about putting his name down yet. But no, that's yeah, that's interesting. All right, well, anything else on the searchers or anything else uh, connected to this? It's just such a good movie. It's like, it's such a high recommend. Oh, one thing I, you know, we talked about it's, uh, it's Rotten Tomato score, but it's also like in like every top 100 movies or whatever. It's, it's almost always on there somewhere, especially if it's Western specific. It's in on the list, if not at the top of like everybody's, you know, oh, my top 10 favorite Westerns, like everyone has the searchers on there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've always talked about like side products projects we could do too, whether it's like, okay, maybe so we're doing obviously a for those who are just tuning in, we're doing like a full one hundred ish or more films on American history. We already did world history. We've talked about oh, we could do like a mini series of, you know, thirty, fifty World War Two only movies. You could definitely do a whole mini series on Westerns and maybe we could just kinda of pick our favorite yeah. Westerns and and I mean Flash forwarding, I guess, years from now, I think that's kind of where we see the podcast going is that as we finish up these kind of longer lists, maybe it becomes more like uh, these mini lists where we kind of do a theme for a different, different various topics and uh, Westerns yeah. would uh, definitely be a big one that uh, I'm sure you could talk me into. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thanks for listening and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming next time. Yeah.